Let us pray. We praise you, O God, and we give you thanks for every good gift. And we ask you to silence in us now any voice but your own that in this moment and in this place and in this gathering you might speak your word. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark. We continue in the first chapter beginning at the 29th verse. Let us hear God's word. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark... He got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we are not even finished with the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and already we are breathless. And just, immediately, and immediately, at once, repeated and repeated and repeated, if... If this was an 8th grade English paper, I would have word choice marked all over it in red ink. Scholars have different theories as to why this is so. The author of Mark wanted to signal urgency or the eminence of Jesus' return or simply to drive the story along at a quick pace. And we get more of it this morning. Jesus has been baptized and tempted. He has healed and cured. He has called disciples. He has taught already. He is developing an impressive resume and people are paying attention. The crowds are growing and gathering. And he keeps it up at a nearly relentless pace. They go to a house of one of the newly called disciples for dinner where first Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law, offering a much better hostess gift than flowers or a bottle of wine ever could be. And a crowd forms around the house, and he cures and he heals and he casts out demons. You can imagine the scene. It is hot and crowded and chaotic, a combination of fear and hope and expectation. And then night comes. 
We are in a year of stewardship. A year when we think in focused ways about how we care for and offer all the gifts that God gives us. We've looked at, we'll keep looking at money, relationships, our history, this building, our particular gifts. At the root of it all, though, is something even more fundamental than that. We, we alluded to it last week, or at least Lynette did last week, as we pondered Jesus' incarnation and connected it to ours. The gift of our very lives. How we are stewards, good and faithful stewards of the gift of our lives. It seems so simple and obvious And yet it is not. Mary Oliver asked the question in this oft-quoted poem, Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And we take that question and we focus it a bit through the words of Martin Luther King Jr. Life's most persistent and urgent question, he wrote, is what are you doing for others? So in terms of stewardship, we believe that God gave us life and that we care for that gift best as we invest it in others. That can take on many forms. Remember what the famous Scottish runner from Chariots of Fire, Eric Liddell, said to his sister Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose but he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Or Bach, who said, I play the notes as they are written, but it is God who makes the music. Someone asked the writer Flannery O'Connor, Miss O'Connor, why do you write? And she replied, because I'm good at it. And then she explained, there is no excuse for anyone to write fiction for public consumption unless she's been called to do so by the presence of a gift. We are given life, the most gracious gift from God, the core gift. And then we are given particular gifts by which the gift of our life is nurtured, gifts that serve others, creativity and wisdom and compassion in a, in a variety of forms, our own versions of running or composing or writing, yours are yours, mine are mine. The whole point of Jesus' earthly ministry, the whole point of incarnation, if we can be so crass as to call it a point, is to see what such a life looks like with its gifts being fully utilized to serve others. Now, we're not Jesus, I know that. Yet there is no doubt that Jesus' human life can be a model, an example, a kind of benchmark for how we live our lives. What will we do with our one wild and precious life? We will live it to the fullest using our special and particular gifts in the service of others. But wait. 
wait. Jesus knew something that we often forget. Brad read from the prophet Isaiah, God does not grow faint or weary. God doesn't tire, but we do. God does not grow faint or weary. God gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I don't know if mounting up with wings like eagles is a Super Bowl prediction or not. (laughs) Though I know that eagles appears dozens of times in the Bible and Patriots zero, I'm just saying. (laughs) Sorry, Coach Belichick. What I do know, what scripture teaches us, is that we need renewal in order to fully serve. We grow weary and faint, even the youngest and strongest among us, even third church youth grow weary and faint. And God strengthens us. God gives us power. Jesus knows that. If you noted, as we were rehearsing the breathtaking events of Mark's gospel, we ended with night falling. The day has come to a close, and take care to note what happens next. Jesus gets up early, very early, and he goes to a deserted place to pray. Think about that. Even Jesus, even Jesus, understood that a ceaseless regimen of teaching and healing and curing would empty him out. So he went to a deserted place to pray. One Jesus is plenty, one Savior is enough. So that must mean that we are called, even in the face of our deep service to others in the world, we are called to emulate, to acknowledge our need for replenishment, for rejuvenation, for rest, for Sabbath. If it's true for Jesus, How much more must it be true for you and for me? If we give and give and give until we are fully depleted, then we cannot live fully into our vocation. Or stated in the negative, if we empty our tanks, we're not much good use and not very good stewards. So Jesus goes away to a deserted place to pray. What does that look like for us in 2018? Well, first it will look differently for each of us. For some, it will mean an electronic Sabbath, putting down your phone or your device for an hour or a day or whatever it takes. For some, it will mean calling time out in a crazy and busy schedule filled with practices and rehearsals and games and recitals. 
For some, it will mean examining an intense work pattern and making a shift, big or small. And a deserted place, it might be a drive or a walk or a nap or a movie or 20 minutes on the elliptical. This is not about technique. It's about perspective and a posture. And this is not selfish. Get over that. Self-care, though I don't love that phrase, self-care can be selfish, of course, but this is not about that. This is legitimate, authentic care for self as a gift of God. Tending to self as a part of the holy cadence of human life. So it is spiritual. That might concern us, we who think we're not spiritual, we don't pray the right way or whatever, but this is spiritual care. Where care for the self really becomes stewardship of the soul. In a teaching document, John Calvin asked, what do you mean by spiritual rest? Here's his answer. Spiritual rest is when we keep holiday from our own works, that God may perform God's own works in us. Keeping holiday from our own works, that God may perform God's works in us. Because when we work all the time, even for the common good, we can forget who is actually doing the working. And resting is a reminder of that. Shelley Miller writes, Rest provides fine-tuning for hearing God's messages amidst the static of life. So we go to our deserted places. And we pray, prayerful, resting, where we thank God and ask God and seek God. This rhythm is as old as creation itself and as contemporary as a call to put down our phones every once in a while and breathe deeply in the Spirit of God. Jesus goes away and he prays. And then he re-emerges to fully engage. Here's what he says. Let us go on to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also. For this is what I came out to do. There's a rhythm. A pattern. A cadence. Claim your life as a precious gift of God. Invest that gift fully and its special and particular attributes in the service of others. And when you are weary, and you will get weary, retreat, retreat to renew. And after disengaging, re-engage, even more wildly, in the work you are called to do. And then repeat, and repeat, and repeat all to the glory of God for such a time as this. Amen.